Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Replatforming podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the common issues and risks associated with replatforming, uh, something we both feel quite passionate about because no project is 100% perfect, but actually it really makes sense to understand where it could go wrong up front and plan for that effectively. So we're going to talk about what risk is and why you need to face up to it because burying your head in the sand does not help anybody. All it will do is shove the problem further down the line, which normally ends up snowballing and costing more. Then we get on to planning considerations. How, what can we do to, to um, you know, ensure projects are set up well? Then we look at contract structure and impact. Paul made a really good point to me earlier about some of the issues he's seen is when people aren't even thinking about contract structure, what's the impact of how the contract is defined? And then we're going to finish up with good practice for governance. What are those principles that help keep a project on track? So first and foremost, why is uh, re-platform complex and why does it come with risk? Uh, a couple of key things here. Replatforming involves technology, involves people, and involves processes, and all three of those can add complexity. When you have people in the mix as well, you have people with different viewpoints, different experiences, and inevitably politics creeps in at some point, and you have to be able to manage that. So no project that involves complex technology, lots of different people with diverse stakeholder needs is ever 100% plain sailing. That's why risk and issues occur. That's why you need to have a decent planning process and understanding of what the common risks and issues are and how you can mitigate them. That might sound daunting, it's just the reality, and you've got to understand the reality when looking at these projects. But the good news is that with sensible and proven project management controls, you can identify, mitigate, and manage risk. So I thought it'd be quite a good time now to hand over it to you, Paul. I know that you've got a lot of experience around these projects and have seen certain commonalities amongst all of them. So what, what in your mind are the most common issues and errors that creep in and what are the things that people can do about them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think there's loads of uh, different types of risks going into a replatforming budget and it tends to differ depending on the size of business and how a business is structured. Um, so from a kind of hands-on perspective, I think one of the biggest risk areas is SEO, which um, I think is probably a good thing for us to talk about a bit more later. But that, to me, has been one of the biggest areas where a project's been deemed a failure, or at least short term, when kind of revenues dropped um, and the project looked upon in a negative way um, as a result of revenue dropping. Um, I think costs is a big one um, and it's always going to be a big one so how costs are structured um, kind of setting expectations earlier um, as early in the project as possible making sure that kind of budgets are set and they're realistic as well um, and they're kind of broadly covering all of the different areas of replatforming not just the build cost or the licensing cost um, and then for me the biggest one um, is discovery so this is the area where I've seen projects um, delayed or again kind of considered um, in a negative way um, as a result of kind of the initial definition not matching up to the actual scope of the project or certain areas of the project not being scoped out properly um, and there being big gaps in terms of the scope on both sides um, and dependent on how that's structured from a kind of TNM or fixed scope perspective one party will always lose out um, and depending on how big that area is, that can have a really big impact on the success of a project or even the delivery of a project at all. Um, so they're probably the ones that have impacted me the most. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think the discovery or the project initiation phase is something that's often underestimated by client teams who haven't been through it before. From your experience, what are some of the, the techniques people can use to make sure discovery is spot on and you get quality outputs from it instead of just somebody sitting in a meeting room 
uh, talking about um, requirements, documenting everything under the sun and thinking that that's job done. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's different uh, sides to this. So the main discovery, in my opinion, should be led by an agency. Um, and I think it's important for an agency to really kind of structure the areas and topics um, based on how they're going to deliver. Um, and then it's important to have different um, kind of people in the room from their perspective as well. Um, so most of the agencies that I've seen deliver a project on budget on time um, have had a certain level of technical input in the room from the start. They've kind of had a good business analyst or a solution architect kind of working on um, the both the back end and the front end considerations with the client. It's a lot more of a broad conversation rather than just kind of saying this is how it's going to work um, or kind of just looking at the front end, for example. Um, I think it's important that a client is fully vested in invested in a discovery as well. So a lot of the time when a discovery has hasn't been as effective that I've seen, it's been that certain stakeholders aren't involved in the discovery. Um, and they're one of the biggest drivers of change requests further down the line. Um, or it's that people have kind of rushed the discovery because they're too busy or certain people have been too busy to attend certain sessions. And I think um, it's really important that the discovery is seen as the most important part of the project. Um, and I usually suggest that it's looked at independently. Um, and even like a lot, a lot of the time, the client would try and bring down the cost of the discovery. But I think realistically, um, it's where you need to flesh everything out. And it's often the client that benefits from like a really detailed spec in that they can then refer back to it and say, this is how we want it to, deliver, to be delivered, everything else. And it's like insufficient uh, detail in a spec that then goes against the project. So, um, so yeah, I think um, allocating enough time and having the right people fully invested um, are the key to a good discovery. Yeah, I couldn't agree more actually. Uh, people wanted to scrimp and save a few thousand pounds out of discovery, which will cost them loads of issues later on because they might not have thought through requirements in enough detail to help developers set things up in the way they want to, which then takes much more cost retrospectively to fit back in. Technical SEO is a good example. Uh, I think clients need sometimes it actually pays to to divorce the discovery cost and the um, agreement away from the main contract and have that as a separate piece of work under a letter of intent because then there's a divorcing of saying well actually if we discover anything bad during this process where actually our, our, our choice of partner might not be right and they might not be able to deliver what we want you're not committed into a, a much higher spend but you've got your learning um, and that learning can be taken across somebody else. So I think, yeah, lot, lots of valid points. And it kind of it ties in with some of the other things that I've seen as well. So one of the key ones for me is like no board level sponsor. So this is the ownership piece. If you don't have a single board level sponsor, and I mean single, not multiple people, there's no clear escalation path and no final sign off on ownership. And that's so important because if you don't have executive support, it's so hard to get things over the line, especially if there's any uh, change in budget or, or any change in, in scope based on what you've learned through a, a complex discovery process. Um, yeah, and the, the clear scope of deliverables, completely agree with that. Because when you get to UAT, user acceptance testing, how on earth can you evaluate the platform fit for purpose and readiness if you don't know what you're evaluating it against? It then becomes a, oh, it looks nice, rather than it functionally delivers what we need to and what's in scope. You often get compromised go as a result of that. Um, other things, things like unrealistic time frame. I've seen this too many times. People rush to get things done. It's like, we want to be live by January. There's no business critical need to. So there's nothing you know, such as well, if we're not live by January, the old platform's obsolete and we are screwed and our revenue's compromised. But it's a it's an internal, we want to be live by January and they'll compromise the project in order to be then. 
a, one of the challenges as a consultant is to is to get people to relax, calm down, and think through what's most important. Is it the January deadline, or is it the scope? Is it the budget? What is driving that fundamental decision? Sometimes waiting a little bit more means you get better quality of output, which cost, which is more cost efficient in the long run, instead of suddenly having to find more budget to fix the things you didn't think about properly. Um, and my absolute favourite is personal bias, which is going into a, a team and somebody saying, oh, I love Magento, it's the best platform, or oh, we had Magento in my last business, it was awful, it just didn't work, we couldn't do the basic things without paying a developer. You need to stop, rationalise and ask why, because Magento in itself is not a terrible platform. Uh, and implementation is, is either good or bad, depending on the quality of input from the client team, the budget, the resource, the quality of the development partner. So sometimes it's the right platform, but the wrong implementation. Other times it's, uh, it's um, you know, right implementation, wrong, wrong uh, platform. So you have to tease these things out. So all of these things need to be thought through um, in, in close detail. And I think the most important thing I've learned is ask the why. When people say this happens or this is our process or this doesn't work, is find out why before you start making that assumption. Yeah, agreed. So next thing is planning considerations. So I'll kick off a, a few things and then uh, interested to hear your thoughts as well, Paul. So I'm a stickler for process. You know, I'm exceptionally uh, dull in effect, um, but it does really work. And what I've learned over the last probably five, six years of focusing on replatforming is get people brought into a proper structured project from the start so there are no alarms and surprises and people work to the same discipline. So there's a few key things I'll tease out and I'm interested in your thoughts. So the first one is get a project initiation workshop. So even, this is before you've chosen you know, your vendor, your SI partner, before you even get down to the point of doing detailed discovery is have the project team from the client in a room and flash through what the project is, what the scope is, um, who's involved, stakeholders, what their responsibilities are, what the work streams, how you're going to deliver it, and turn that into a really simple high-level brief that says, this is our project, this is how we're delivering it, these are the key milestones, and circulate it. Everyone bought in from the start. There's nothing worse for a stakeholder to suddenly be called into a workshop last minute for four hours. They have no idea what it's about. They've got no time to prepare, and they're chucked into a room just because they're expected to be there because you haven't thought through your communication properly. So set clear goals, objectives. Also have clear metrics of success. Like how are you measuring success? Is it based on coming into budget? Is it based on scope? And what, what are you measuring? Is it based on protecting revenue, growing revenue? So get all of this agreed up front. Get a scope signed off. Because if you're going to hit, trying to hit a fixed time frame of budget, you have to be really sensible about what's realistic in scope. If you don't have a clear scope signed off up front, and this can be, you know, you can have a, a project scope, and then you can have an MVP, minimum viable project, which says, that's our phase one go live. That's the minimum that we can tick the box to say we can go live with. There's ways of chunking up the scope so you can actually deliver a comprehensive set of requirements without compromising the time frame. But you've got to think this through carefully and everyone's got to buy into it. Um, then you've got to run stakeholder interviews. And the key thing here is get everyone briefed. Make sure people come into a room knowing why the hell they're there. Because if not, you're wasting their time and you're probably going to risk compromised outputs. I get the right people in the room. If you plan it, you get the right people briefed, ready to go, and you get a much better quality of output. Once you've got those stakeholder demands captured, you can prioritise them with the project team, you then go to market, look at the platforms out there based on requirements and fit purpose. You know, Gartner and Forrester do good resources in terms of market comparisons of, of key vendors. There's loads of articles out there comparing platforms. Paul's got um, some very, very good ones that I've passed on to many clients over the years and they, uh, they found them uh, invaluable reading. And there are lots of other consultants out there uh, and agencies putting out good comparisons. Um, 
But the next thing is, is be very clear on how you're going to evaluate a vendor. If you go into a vendor demo with a, oh, we want a new platform, how the hell do you pick apart what's good, what's bad? You've got to focus them on demoing the bits that are most important to your business. And you've got to have a clear process for evaluating the score in those demos. If you don't do that, then it's completely subjective. So create scorecards, have clear criteria for doing those scoring, brief everyone and get everyone comparing against the same criteria because then you've got a proper output you can evaluate. Um, and then the next thing for me is cost model. As Paul alluded to earlier is be clear on defining which elements of cost you need to think about, not just the license fee and the upfront build, third-party application costs, ongoing support, maintenance, have all of those cost streams planned out and then work with vendors and agencies to fill them so you have a rounded view of cost. And even think about internal costs, like do you need extra resource to service a new platform? Do you need more web admin people? Do you need a content manager? All those things that add cost into a project. Um, so those are, those are my key things I've learned over the years. Um, anything different or any other things that you focus on, Paul, in your projects? Um, I think all of the points that you've made are probably most of the ones I would say as well. Um, you said about cost as well and uh, demoing kind of different pieces of functionality to different people in the business. I think that's really important. And the other thing is uh, outside of cost is time. So like there are a number of platforms, and we've talked about this a lot over the last couple of years, um, that would require a third party that might actually be quite a manual process or like if a platform doesn't have a multi-store capability um, and certain things need to be done manually in different ways um, it's also the time overhead as well and thinking about the cost or like the cost of the business of that as well um, and kind of that also then um, is part of a much broader cost of ownership analysis which I know you've done a lot of in the past um, in terms of the scope of the build, I think one thing that I've learned over the last couple of years is the importance of a phase two and kind of pri constant prioritization of features. Um, and then I'm thinking about the benefits of pushing things into that phase two. So um, I worked on a build a while back that, and the agency had this concept of a fast follower, which is basically um, a number of sprints post launch where they could push things into, but they promised that it would be prioritized over other work within the business um, and they would kind of be flexible in terms of delivering that and on that build that was really valuable there are a number of there are a number of things that the merchant would have been really hesitant to take out of phase one but actually it was delivered a month later and the build was a much easier process um, and there was a much better end result for phase one as a result of pushing certain things into phase two. Um, so that was um, a really positive experience that I've tried to bring into other projects since then. Um, you talked about um, objectives and expectations as well. I think one of the other things in terms of understanding different people's expectations of a project. So we talked about or you talked about um, kind of people trying to rush projects for no reason. I think a lot of the time when I've seen people try to rush projects it'll either be to get something live before a peak which makes sense I guess to a business but there's consequences um, but the other thing that I've seen is people having really high expectations around the impact of a replatforming project which haven't been addressed so for example I've worked with retailers where they thought that conversion rate was going to improve considerably by replatforming and this is people outside of the project team um, and then when it comes to launch, there's obviously no impact on conversion rate. There's a good chance you're going to uh, lose some level of organic visibility. Um, but realistically, the replatforming project is a technology project 
and it's a kind of a long-term project, not a short-term, this is going to drive additional revenue. And I think that setting that expectation internally um, is a really valuable thing to do as well. Um, and then lastly, in terms of uh, planning, which James has a lot more experience than I do for big projects, um, I think the only thing is, is some of the retailers I've worked with have this expectation that when the development agency deliver a project plan, um, that that would dictate everything that the retailer needs to do. Whereas realistically, I think the project team internally need to be very well prepared in terms of what they need to do around migrating content, migrating data. Um, if you're, if the internal team are handling integrations as well, like that shouldn't be an isolated process. Um, and all of those kind of critical pieces of the project should be started up front. Um, and then it should be a collaboration to ensure that that can be done so that it's not just left down to the final 25%. Um, and that's been something that has been really critical in projects that have been delivered on time and on budget for me. Um, I worked on a big one in the US about a year ago and they had a really strong product owner for the replatforming internally. Um, and she did a really good job of owning all of the kind of people that were taking responsibility of different areas. Um, and she was basically just pushing uh, every party to agree to timescales and then uh, trying to bring things forward basically that could, uh, that were on like a risk um, radar. Um, and that again had a really positive impact on that project. And it was the fastest project I've ever worked on for probably the biggest retailer. Um, and I think that was a big part of that project's success. Cool, excellent. Yeah, that point about unrealistic expectations is so important. Managing expectations so that people don't go live and go, why isn't it fixed all the problems of the world? As though, well, actually that was a process issue, it wasn't a technology platform issue. Um, we were talking about contract structure earlier, we'll touch on it now, but we'll cover this in much more detail because we're going to be focusing on total cost of ownership in a uh, podcast coming up in the not too distant future. But I like the point you made earlier about con contracts and contracts can trick people up because you know, this thing that a contract is just a contract, well, that's not true, actually. The terms within the contract can have an impact on you in, in the context of when costs are due, how much cost is due, and often people underestimate how quickly costs become payable within a project. And that's one of the issues and risk is if you haven't thought through the impact from a budget and a financial flow point of view, it can cause issues with your finance team where you suddenly say, oh, yeah, that 50 grand we had to pay, no, no, that's actually up front. It's not at the, uh, in six months' time. And this is impacting things such as when do licenses become payable? Are they payable up front uh, in advance? When is hosting fees uh, established because actually you've got production, in, uh, you've got um, development environments live and therefore you're incurring costs already? What are, the, what are the couple of things then that you've, you've discovered that, that people should be thinking about in terms of, of the, uh, the risk or issue of not getting the contract nailed down? Yep, um, absolutely. So that point you made at the end, I think, is, um, is a really interesting one. So I've had loads of projects where people haven't realised when third parties are going to start being uh, billable. So, for example, if you're implementing a third party search solution, personalisation, uh, user generated content, um, most of those vendors these days tend to start billing when you start integrating. Um, and that's something that has been a big unexpected cost in the past. And with something like Shopify, um, they will, you will need to sign the contract pretty early in the project in order to have enough users for developers and internal users and everything else. Um, and again, that's something that people don't always factor in. And I think that's um, yeah, a really good area where people get tripped up. Um, in terms of the contracts, there's a few things that we try to always uh, do when we're working with a client, which is 
Uh, one is to do fixed scope post-discovery. Um, so uh, post-discovery, you would have a pretty detailed spec um, in an ideal world, um, and you would be comfortable committing against committing budget against that, and then the development agency should ideally be comfortable committing to a fixed um, amount of money for that scope, um, given that they've done a big discovery and they've kind of looked at all the third parties, integrations, uh, how things need to work on the front end, back end, everything else. Um, and again, I think that comes down to the importance of a detailed discovery, but that's something that we're pretty keen on. Um, I'm generally quite cautious with TNM just because we've been burnt in the past on other projects and um, and it always just leaves things open. And it's a, to be honest, it's usually one of the biggest contributors to an agency relationship falling down as well. Um, and then the only other one that we try to always do is have a big payment upon launch. Um, and the reason for that is just because I think it's important that the agency have some level of incentive for launching on deadline or at least for launching um, as soon as possible. Um, and that's been the way, the fairest way we've done it. I don't necessarily believe in like penalty fees and things like that. Um, I've seen people do bonuses in the past, which has worked quite well. Um, but usually like 25% upon launch has been a really good way. Um, I've seen people do that. Yeah, excellent points. The joys of time and materials planning where it's an almost endless pot of development. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, that brings us on to, I guess, kind of closing remarks on this is that, that you know, plat replatform is complex, so are issues and risks, but you can sensibly manage them. And in order to do that, you have to put good project governance structures in place. And as dull as that sounds, it's absolutely critical. So just to recap on some of the key things, have a project initiation meeting and get a clear definition of what the project is and get it communicated across all stakeholders. Make sure everyone involved knows what their role is and when they're going to be involved and what resources to monitor them. And even that their managers are bought into it so that that resource is dedicated to the project. Put project management disciplines in place. Even if you're not an experienced and qualified project manager, there are simple things you can borrow. And I've done this. I've borrowed off far smarter project managers than myself. So a good example is a RAID log, which documents risks, actions, issues and decisions so all it means is that every time you identify risk you document it then you can associate it with somebody if there's an action it's documented so everything's documented so if you ever need to refer back to why so for example a decision was made you know what data was made who made it and therefore it's signed off in the project it removes loads of emotive discussion later on of he said she said i didn't agree to that it's documented and everyone has visibility of it now get a clear comms trail don't rely on emails emails are the plague for big projects because it gets buried down in inboxes, people are busy, they miss an important email, or an email is communicated to 40 people that only to go to five and it slows everyone down. Have proper collaboration tools, whether you're using a Dropbox or a Jira, whatever you use in your business to do it, just make sure there is a centralized place where anyone can follow discussions, um, contribute to them and share documentation. And then have a clear escalation process as well. Things are gonna go wrong, you know, problems set in, but if you have an escalation process, you can manage it, nip it in the bud, and do it sensibly and not let it derail the project. Uh, you know, effective project management is a critical capability. Take it seriously. If you do it right, you'll get your you get people aligned with the project and the deliverables. You'll minimise um, uh, issues like scope creep because you'll be on top of it and you'll have a process for, for evaluating what the impact is and making a decision. And you'll have everything clearly documented, so there's always something to refer back to to help uh, you know, make, make decisions on the uh, you know, ongoing project. So that, I think, guess that's my parting point, Paul, is take governance seriously and learn from the mistakes that other people make and help avoid them yourself.
How about yourself? What would be your parting words of wisdom? Um, I think it'd probably be a similar point, but I would say, I mean, my, this certainly isn't my area of strength by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I have seen projects fail where this stuff hasn't been put in place. And I think anyone doing a really big re-platform needs to be really investing in stuff like this. I think if it's a smaller build, you can probably get away without certain levels of um, kind of this process. But I think if it's a big project, um, bringing someone like James in um, or an external kind of experienced consultant to do this um, is really important. And I think, you know, someone that can independently pull together like a steering committee and kind of put all of this kind of governance in place um, is really valuable. And I think this is where I would certainly be recommended someone like James um, to take this part of the project on. So well, I hope everyone's found that useful. As, as always, if you've got any comments or questions, feel free to hit me and pull up via LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, we hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for the next one in two weeks. Thanks. Right, thanks everyone.